thank you for that prayer. And I want to remind you that there's a congratulation that goes out this morning to Saji and Bindu, who were united in marriage yesterday here at the church. And um, they're not here today, of course. But when you see them, congratulate them. And uh, it was uh, just, yeah, just a kind of small family wedding, but it was very nice. And uh, pray that the Lord would continue to bless him as him and his new wife venture off into a new part of their life. Amen? So uh, just uh, remember them. All right, this morning we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. And um, so let's take our Bibles and turn there. I'll be going to some passages of scriptures in the Old Testament and then the New Testament again. But have your Bibles ready and look, look it up yourself and look at your, the text yourself. Uh, but as I start off this morning, if a dignitary were to come to your home and say to you, I'm coming into your area. Please allow myself and some of my officials to stay in your home for a few days. And you give your consent. But for security reasons, the representative of the dignitary could not give you the day that they were coming or the month that they were coming, only the year that they would arrive. What would you do next? Well, the only wise thing to do is to get ready immediately for the dignitary's arrival and then continue to stay ready for the arrival of this important and special guest. See, so the point this morning as we are considering the passage that I'll be looking at is to be ready to stay continually prepared In other words, to practice living each day in the presence of the Lord Jesus before the eyes of God because we know Jesus will return again. He is coming back again. He is coming first for his church and then he will return with the saints to establish his kingly reign on earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and then he will come again to bring judgment From Scripture, we know that life and history are heading somewhere. We Christians know that we are living in the last days, the messianic era. The last days started with the first coming of Jesus and will continue to the end of the age. So Christians are looking for the blessed hope, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. My father used to have a sign in his office at work that when having a conversation with someone under his charge would have to from time to time tell them, no, you can't do that. If the person proceeded to push back on his reply, he, was, he would point to the sign on his wall, which, in, which was, really, was the form of a question, and, the, and it, it read this, what part of no didn't you understand? Someone I had read suggested, in the case of false teachers, you could point to a similar sign with a slightly different question, what part of remember don't you get? Even though it has been over 2,000 years since the Apostle Peter penned these words, the admonition remains the same as when he first penned them. Be ready. Don't forget. 
God's timetable is not ours. Until then, we must be ready and press on to live for the Lord. As the scripture was read this morning in Matthew 24, verse 44, it says, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. That means people are not ready. But the church ought to be ready. The discerning church ought to be ready. The Apostle Peter wanted the recipients of his letter to have their remembrance of Christ's second coming to be uncontaminated by the seductive influence of their own senses and by the subtle attacks of the mockers of truth. In order to get the truth about the second coming to stick in their minds and to stick in our minds, the Apostle Peter reminds all who will hear and read his two letters, that's First and Second Peter, that Christ will come because there are three established facts. And the first fact is that the Word of God has already announced it. Secondly, the mockers will attack it. And thirdly, the Lord God himself affirms it. So let's look at this in our passage this morning. If the facts stick in your mind, they will aid you in your readiness to never forget Jesus is coming again and to live with that on your mind every single day of your life, seven days a week, month by month, year by year. So let's look at the first thing. The first established fact Christ will come is found in verse number one and two, and it's this, the word of God announced it. The word of God announced it. And notice in verse number one, he wants to give them a a rousing reminder. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, this The two letters were written to the saints to stimulate them to remember what they already have been taught from the scriptures. Recapping a teaching already taught was a common practice among God's people throughout redemptive history. It's still a common practice amongst teachers today. You know you have to repeat things sometimes six times before somebody actually gets it. It's the same with us today. Second Peter already has given us three implications of remembering, remembering sound teaching. This first implication of remembering sound doctrine always that always leads to holiness and godliness. Sound teaching from Scripture always leads to holiness and godliness, never to sinfulness, never to free living, always to that. Also, remembering restrains our increasing in godliness. Notice in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verse number 12, it says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth. So Peter is acting like a father here. He's giving fatherly concern for the well-being of his spiritual children to remind them of what truly is important so that after his death, they can easily remember what he taught them. 
He wants it to be sticking in their mind. A second implication, also in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, remembering sound doctrine that leads to holiness, where it says in verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, that is his body, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, that he wanted to arouse their passions so they would not forget what he taught them. So Peter wants his readers to to remain immovable in the truth that was already available to them, and that is the teaching of the prophets and apostles. Now, why did Peter remind them not to be negligent in something they already knew and were firmly established in? Well, because he wanted to reinforce what he taught in their minds. In verse 15 of chapter 1, this is what he says, and I also, and it says, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So he's very concerned that they just not forget. People don't need new truth. They only need to gain a clearer understanding of the eternal truth that God has already revealed in the word of God. So what is most important for us is to be able to navigate the winding road of life on a strong foundation of objective reality, objective truth, while on our journey home to the eternal city, to look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And why should we do that? So the real substance of the eternal truth of God will stick in our minds that we would not forget it. We would not let anything try to jettison from our minds. There is is repeated the truth now of Jesus' parousia, Jesus' coming. The Greek word for coming is parousia. It's a future event when Jesus the Messiah returns to the earth. So with truth being taught, the readers would come to a pure and a sincere understanding of healthy doctrine that leads them to live a holy life while they are here, which is the opposite of the leaky and distorted thinking of the scoffers or the mockers with their distorted reality and their twisted morality and their perverted spirituality. A judgment will come on the mockers and deniers when the coming of Christ happens and the final judgment of God falls upon the ungodly of this world. So false teachers spoken of in chapter 2 of 2 Peter are again manifested by their denial of Christ's coming. They, They are denying his second coming. They are denying God's final judgment which allows them to stay within their free living thinking to justify their lifestyle. Now who could let himself or herself go into immoral excess, 
habitual sin, if they really believed that the Lord is at any moment ready to return to judge at any time, if somebody really believes that, they will not live any way they want. They will not live carelessly. They will live mindfully that God is coming, that judgment is coming. And they will live mindfully of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus took that judgment for us already. So we are now to live for him until his plan works out and be faithful, no matter what our circumstance, just to be faithful to follow him. So moral laxity is always to be found in false doctrine in some form or another. The Apostle Peter clears up this false teaching not by presenting something new, no, but by stirring up their minds to remember something already taught. Peter says in verse number one, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. A sincere mind, that's chapter three, verse one, is a mind that is free from wrong considerations. He supports the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, first of all, with Scripture. I said that the first point is that the Word of God has already announced the coming of Christ and already set the stage on the circumstances that are going to surround the end time and the coming of Christ. So what does he say here? In verse number two, he says, first of all, remember the Old Testament. Notice what it says. Chapter three, verse two, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. That's the Old Testament. That is the Old Testament. So the defense he uses is, hey, listen, in the Old Testament, God has spoken of the Messiah coming again to bring judgment upon the earth. But the circumstances that surround that, usually by those who do not believe, always seems to ask a question, to question what God is doing. And of course, the question is not a question of wanting to know more information. The question is the question of doubt. I doubt that the word of God is true. I doubt that Jesus is coming again. I doubt that there's going to be a final judgment that will take place. See, so the question always is framed in a way that questions the character of God. Now, just by way of example, just a few passages from the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible ready, look at Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 18. Isaiah the prophet there, remember, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, not only about the second coming, but the circumstances, the mindset of people that question God. In verse number 18 of Isaiah chapter 5, it says, Woe to those who drag iniquity, that's sin, another way of saying sin, with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. And then he says, who say? These people say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. 
And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Now, what they're really doing is they're questioning God himself. How come it's taking him so long if you say this, Isaiah, the prophet? We want to know it. Show it to us. And so their evil hearts are always questioning God. And then what they do is they reverse what is actually true and good. Now look at verse number 20. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, do you see what's going on there? That's exactly what's happening in our day. From the top levels of our government down and everywhere else in religious areas, people are saying, listen, what used to be good is now evil. What is evil is good. It's all a reversal. Everything's getting mixed up and twisted. So when that happens, that people don't have a confidence in truth because they don't believe there is truth. They believe, and if they have any truth, they believe the truth they have within themselves. And that it's not tested by anything outside themselves. So in sincere minds, a sincere mind is ready to receive the message of the prophet, but an insincere mind is not. They question the message of the prophets. Now, another passage of Scripture, go to um, Jeremiah chapter 17, and verse 13 through 15, and then verse number 18. Again, I just want to show you again that the questions already always come up. And again, not a question of faith, question of doubt. It says in Jeremiah 17, verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Look, they keep saying to me, here's the question, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. And then verse 18, let those who persecute me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of disaster and crush them with twofold destruction. Again, that question is, where is the word of the Lord? And then if we, if we go to uh, Malachi, we get the same thing. They question, where's God's justice? And yet we come to Daniel and we see in Daniel that, where Daniel 7.13 says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and presented was presented before him. Again, giving us a picture of, listen, the circumstances, yet... When we look at the prophets, we see them, they are prophesying a coming day where there will be what they call the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, I'll explain a little bit more next time. But I just wanted to lay that down. And Paul, 
Peter was saying, listen, it's, it's already taught in the Old Testament what's going to happen, what they're going to say, how they're going to question. And it's always a satanic method because what is Satan's method when he came to Eve? Did God really say that? It's a question, right? He gets them to question God. He gets them to question the truth. And so back to the second Peter, you'll see that the second thing he says in chapter 3, verse number 2, is remember what the New Testament said. Now, of course, we know when we come to the New Testament, it becomes a little bit clearer of what was being said in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus Christ. So he says in verse number 2, And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now we're coming and saying, listen, not not only the Old Testament has has defended it, but the New Testament also has defended it. Now, if you if you just go uh, past sec, uh, 1 John after 2 Peter into Jude, I want you to look up Jude chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, because Jude foretold the coming of the Lord. And it says there in verse 14 of Jude, of there's only one chapter, it says this, I was also... It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude is saying to them, listen, the Lord is coming, and he's coming with judgment. Jesus himself told us in Matthew 25, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And then when Jesus was talking to his disciples before he went back to heaven in John 14, what did he tell them? He says, if I go and prepare a place you for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. Lord, enforcing to them, listen, guys, it's not over yet. I'm coming back. My plan's not finished yet. And he's just reinforcing that. And then you look at uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He says this, that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient time. And then we see the same thing in the epistles where it says, Paul, the apostle Paul says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then remember, again, when Jesus was going back to heaven, finally leaving this earth, after he spoke to the disciples for about 50 days. He said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will, in just the same way as you seen, watched him go, come again. See, Jesus is definitely coming. The Old Testament told us that, the circumstances surrounding it, and then the New Testament clarifies it. He is coming again. So, as we think about that, the first 
thing that the Peter wants to enforce upon our mind to establish the fact that Jesus is coming is that the word of God has clearly announced it. But secondly, the mockers, the mockers will attack it. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 back there in verse number 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts. So what is the mocker's strategy? Verbal slander. And the very fact that mockers will come on the scene in the last days with their false teaching and ridicule the teaching about Christ's return is a sign. The end is indeed coming and is near. Their activity affirms the truth of prophecy that Christ is indeed coming. And they ridicule not only by their words and their teaching, they ridicule by their very behavior. Because it says in our text, following after their own lust. That's what drives them. The truth doesn't drive them. The, The word of God doesn't drive them. Their own Inner passion for sin drives them while they connect their religious system to what they're doing and allow the, that allows them to live any old way they want to live. So what is their illogical argument? Well, look at verse number four. Here it is. Here it is again. They question. It says, It's the same strategy of the enemy. It's the strange same strategy in the Old Testament of those who just didn't believe. It says in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Where is he? All this time people have been saying Jesus is coming. Well, where is he? I don't see him coming. I don't see any signs of him coming. See, they assume that the universe has continued as a stable and unchanging system from the beginning. And this represents what they call a uniformitarian view that denies any divine intervention into human history. And they are simply saying, he will not come Because he never has come. He has never intervened. God has never broken into human existence. So this is a traditional formula for expressing skepticism, not belief. The scoffers maintain that God's promise is unreliable and that God's universe is stable and an unchanging system where events like the parousia, events like the coming of Christ, just don't happen. So these false teachers' arguments ignore a good deal and omits what God has done. Because they've already denied the Creator, they've already denied the Word of God, they already denied the promises given by the prophets and apostles. And the only thing left, if you deny all that, is your own imaginations. It's your their own imaginary conclusions and confusions. 
They refuse to be ruled by Scripture. To use Scripture in a manner that would make allowances for their own sinful agenda. So false teachers had a realized eschatology that said that God has turned this world over to his creation and was no longer involved in the affairs of this world and would never intervene in judgment against his own creation. In philosophy, the universe can be understood as a closed system that operates on a cause-effect basis. And thus, any sort of divine intervention is eliminated. On the other hand, a Christian philosophy would articulate a controlled system which acknowledges a cause-effect relationship that allows the possibility of divine intervention anytime God wants to do it. So we could ask the question, why would the heretical teachers take such a cavalier view of how to live life while at the same time claiming to allow their religious system which allows them to worship God in any, in any way they choose, why do they even think like that? Because I mentioned before these false teachers were influenced by what they call Epicurean thought. Epicurean means one who makes a living at picking up scraps. These philosophers were known as seed pickers. They would pull various acts, aspects of pagan and Christian teaching and, and kind of synthesize them into some new syncretistic kind of religion. Oh, that sounds good. I think I'll include that. Oh, that sounds good. I think I'll include that. The judgment of God. No, let's not, let's not talk about that, right? God coming again to this world. No, let's leave that one out. See, they wanted to hear new teaching. Then they would pick and choose what they wanted to keep and, and or reject. So the Epicureans rejected any idea of the providential intervention of gods and believed the world was ruled by chance. They believed in the unchanging nature of creation. Like it says in verse number four, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So they believe there would be no future judgment or just end to the world. So then they concluded that human beings are free to do, pursue their own desires, and live the way they wanted to. And they thought the sins of the body remained within their body and that God would never call them to account for their earthly sins. Okay, again, all of that is twisted and false teaching does not line up with Scripture at all. So false teachers said God no longer intervenes in this world. And if there is no divine intervention, no coming again of Jesus, no judgment, just live like you want to. And still be religious. Don't throw your religion away. Keep that. Because that will soothe your conscience so you may at least feel like you're doing something right. So the scripture fills in the blank of the historical reality that we actually live in and that the false teachers twisted, misrepresented, and omitted truth must be 
addressed. So the third established fact that Christ will come is the Lord God affirms it. Verse 5 through 10 of chapter 3. So now a defense is made by the fact of past happenings in world history that the Lord God has always been in control of this world and its history. It is God that created the world and then sent a worldwide cataclysmic flood to destroy it. So the question here to the false teachers is what about the worldwide flood? That's what Peter brings up. Look at verse number 5. The world was formed by water, and it says when, verse 5, for when they maintained this, that's the false teachers, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, God created it. But notice in verse number 6, can God destroy what he creates? Yes. God destroys it by water. Look what it says in verse 6. Through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Did that somehow get out of your purview that you have missed that God did this cataclysmic thing? How does such a huge event as a cataclysmic worldwide flood escape their notice? Well, it could be that they thought it was just a mystical story. More clearly, by sinful choice. They put out of their minds the whole history of creation and the flood and willfully choose and close, choose what they want and close their minds to the overabundance of evidence. Even till this day, we're gaining more and more evidence about a worldwide flood. The evidence is overwhelming to anybody who just wants to look at the facts. There is found a, sweet, a sequel account of the flood of Genesis in a book called The Epic of Gilgamesh, dated about 2000 B.C., which has many similarities to the biblical Genesis account. However, once the flood account was mixed with Babylonian polytheism, and it was mixed with other unrelated information, and then it was passed down as myth. In fact, if you go back and you look at this particular document, which you can see, it talks about a cosmic flood in the setting of polytheistic myths, many gods. In fact, the, the, the following similarities are found in connection to the biblical account of Genesis. And here's some of them. A divine degree to create, to create uh, is revealed in this document, a boat is built according to careful measurements and sealed with tar. A 
family and many animals entered it. The flood arises, and birds are sent out three times, and these include a dove and a raven. Now, it sounds an awful lot, a lot like the biblical account of Genesis, doesn't it? And yes, it does. The similarities of the, the narrative detail, together with the inclusion of the cosmic flood, suggest the possible survival of reports and memories of the Genesis flood after it happened. It actually affirms and supports Scripture. However, when true stories are mixed with other outside material, the narrative becomes corrupt, and then it slips into the category of legend, and then myth, and then, of course, fables, just stories. But did not the Apostle Peter already tell us in chapter 1, verse number 16? What did he say? He says, remember, what I have not taught you, to follow, we did not follow cleverly devised tales, chapter 1, verse number 16. And of course, cleverly devised tales are always used in the negative sense, myth, legend, fables, that these fables were far-fetched stories, usually of a religious nature, about the gods of the nations steeped with pagan practices. So false teachers just thought it was a story, just a myth, but they also willfully rejected any kind of truth connected to it. These false teachers were so locked into the present pleasures of this life that the thought of God's future coming kingdom was blurred to their greedy hearts and corrupt desires. With their clouded minds, the second coming of Christ seemed to be like a made-up story. Something kids should read in their little reading book. No more, no less than that. It is a historical fact that the whole world was covered with the floodwaters and that the world that then existed was destroyed by the very waters out of what the earth had originally emerged at God's commanding word. His word that creates also destroys. And that's what it says in our passage here, that God created the world with water, and he destroyed it by water. That's what God did. In fact, the word of God even tells us where the water went afterwards and what God did to put boundaries around it, that there would not be a worldwide flood again. And just take your Bibles and quickly look over to Psalm 104, verse 6 through 9. Just a quick gander at what the Word of God tells us about this event. In Psalm 104, verse number 6, it says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to a place which you established for them. 
you set boundary, a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He is saying here, listen, once that flood took place, I set boundaries on water that there will never be a worldwide flood like in the days of Noah ever again. And then he gives us the rainbow as a promise to that word. So Jesus is Lord, he's Savior, he is ruler over God's creation and judge. False teachers said God no longer intervenes in this world. Peter says, no, that's not true. Actually, there's many proofs that God has and will intervene in world history. Creation is one of them. The worldwide flood is another one. God sending his son to accomplish redemption by dying, shedding his blood, rising from the dead, and ascending back into heaven is another one. And let me just tell you this. He's coming again at the end of the world as an end-time judge, and that will take place. hasn't happened yet, but it will. Why? Because God is true. God is true, and we can believe every word the Bible says because of his character, because he is the author of the word of God as he moved upon holy men to write the scriptures. So the Lord is sovereign and is and has always been in charge of this planet. He knows when he wants to create it. He knows when he wants to curse it. He knows when he wants to drown it. He knows when he wants to restore it. He knows when he wants to destroy it. And then he knows how to completely replace it with a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And that's where Peter's going with his argument. That that's our hope. We're looking in this world, there'll never be righteousness to the level that we're going to see in the new heaven and the new earth. So don't look for it here. Matter of fact, the more you turn and listen to the news, the more you realize how unrighteous this world is, how corrupt it is. It is at every level, in every place in the world, there's nothing but just corruption. And it's just taking over. It's taking over. So God is in charge of the earth. We can't save it. No green new deal is going to save this planet. We're called to subdue it and to enjoy it and to use the supply that comes from the earth for our own needs and use it to give God honor and glory because someday God is going to Get rid of this disposable planet, right? So the fiery judgment is anticipated in the judgment by water in Noah's day. At one time, water brought judgment. But this time, fire shall do it. Fire will alter both the heavens and the earth completely. Look at verse number 7 of 2 Peter. But by his word, the same word that created, the same word that destroyed, it says by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There's a promise there for you and I that God will do what he says. 
Fire shall do it. Fire shall alter both the earth and the universe. I'll look, say more about that ne- next message, but I do want to say, move from God being sovereign over the earth to the second thing it says about the character of God. Look at verse number 8, that God is outside of time. It says in verse number 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. So while it is true that God created a time-space world, he himself is not bound by its time limitations. He is not bound by that. See, the false teachers failed to grasp this vital attribute of the eternality of God, that he is not bound by the constraints of time signatures such as past, present, and future. He is the eternal now. He is the God who is outside of time. A thousand years is like yesterday to God. He's he's not constrained by all those things. However, to the false teachers, because the second coming has not yet occurred, especially within their concept of time and the restraints of time, to them it serves as a verification that the idea of the parousia or the coming of Christ is unfounded. It hadn't happened. It's not going to happen. But God remains the Lord over time. And the eternity of God is a great topic to study if you ever get a chance to do that. But not only is God sovereign, not only is he outside of time, but also God is on schedule. He is on schedule. Look at verse number 9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Let me just stop right there. See, the false teachers don't understand who God is, therefore they also fail to consider the, cra- the gracious ways of God. Yes, in relation to time, it does seem that things are moving slowly and are taking a long time to pan out. And because of this, this delay, one may conclude that all remains the same. Nothing really has changed. Time and life will go on like it always has gone on. Or maybe they would think, well, maybe God has just forgotten or changed his mind. The mockers were accusing God of being slow. What's taking so long? If you say you're coming, come. But here's the wonderful thing about our Lord. He has not left us to speculate for the reason for his delay. Understood from God's perspective, his delay clearly goes to the heart of what God desires for humanity from the beginning of creation until the end. And what is that? His delay is evangelistic. That's why he delays. That's why he delays. Now let me read the whole passage. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, 
as some count slowness, the promise of his coming, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, here it is. This is the reason he is not acting quickly is so that all the chosen will come to repentance. That lost souls will have a change of heart to turn from sin to serve and believe and live for the true and living God. So the loving nature of God has led to his patience, desiring more time for more people to repent of sin and come into the fold of his sheep. And of course, the patience of God is mentioned always in the context of salvation, where we, where we think of First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, For this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And then in Romans it tells us, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? See, the parousia, has been delayed. The coming of Christ has been delayed due to God's patience in seeking the redemption of his sheep. Not everybody has been saved who's going to be saved yet. That's why he's waiting. Aren't you glad he's doing that? Aren't you praying for people and your family to be saved? So if he came today, what would that do? <laughs> I mean that they were never going to be saved. But see, we pray and ask God to save people. Why? Because there are some people that are not yet saved, not yet brought into the sheepfold yet, but are going to be saved. And of course, if you're wondering about the passage, it's not saying in this passage that everyone's going to be saved. It's, in other words, God is not wishing or willing that any of his elect will per perish is really what it's saying. The passage may be read as follows. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who's you? Not wishing that any of you, the chosen ones, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And will all the chosen come to repentance? Yes! Can't answer that passage of Scripture other than that. So God is waiting he may be waiting for some of you here to come to repentance, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He may be waiting for you. Because in reality, we're not guaranteed tomorrow, are we? The Lord may not come tomorrow, but you may die tomorrow. I may die tomorrow. And the sad thing sometimes when you're, re when you're watching movies and you say, you know what, everybody in this movie is dead. It's weird, isn't it? And even people that you knew were alive and now they're dead and they're in a movie, it's just weird. You know why? Because death is weird. It doesn't belong anywhere in this universe. 
And that, that's why God's going to banish it. That's why he's going to banish it for good. Because it never belonged, it never will belong. So God is waiting for you to come, if you haven't come yet, to believe in Jesus Christ. Because the day, today may be the day of salvation. Today. And this Greek word that he uses here, that God is patient towards you, is it's a word that, it, in the beginning of the word, it means macro. It means that God has a, a huge, a large amount of constraint that he's displaying to contain his anger against the ungodly, against that day he's going to pour it out in the world so people will come and be saved. He's restraining himself. And that leads to verse number 10, which I'll pick it up next week. But look what it says. God is just, and his justice will prevail. In verse number 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That day is coming. So teaching of the last things has a practical significance to it. It will help us wait with patient trust that in God's time, he will work out his plan. And you know what? We're, we're kind of living in an exciting time. Yeah, a lot of depressing things going on around us, but it's exciting to live now. Do you realize that even 30 years ago, people read the scripture and said, I don't know about if that's going to happen this way. And now we see things happen that no one in any other generation ever saw. And it's happening a little bit too fast for my sake, but, but it's happening. But it hasn't changed God's plan. You know, we may be persecuted, we may lose our life for the, uh, life for the faith, but you know what? All right, so what? It's not the end for us. So, it, so in the midst of all difficulties of life, we must continue to meditate upon the future life. In this life, God permits his people to be troubled and plagued like Dave was praying this morning, either with wars or chaos or crimes or all kinds of other injuries, diseases, and pandemics. He allows those things to happen. And many of those things do bring people to faith in Christ. It's when things are going good, you don't think about God. But when the bottom gets dropped out, all, all of a sudden, you start thinking about, you're starting to ask the right questions. Where am I going to go when I die? Where do I really stand before God? If there is an end, and, I, and this life is not the end, where am I going to end up? That, that, that should cause some fear. But the Bible has the answer. And the answer is Jesus Christ. He's the answer. So through, through these things, God sets before us how unstable and fleeting all the goods and the things are in this world. So we must always be ready to contemplate life in the age to come. And such contemplation transforms us and helps God's people live according to the teaching of Christ, always considering ourselves as strangers and pilgrims on the earth who seek the joy and the peace 
of God's future kingdom where righteousness will dwell. So thinking rightly about the revelation of Jesus Christ, thinking rightly about the second coming, it will bolster your faith. It will bring comfort in the midst of trials, especially to those who endure endure trials for the sake of the gospel. It also has a very purifying effect on our sanctification. I believe the gospel, the first John says it clearer than any other passage of the Bible where it says in first John 3, 2, listen, it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not a, appeared as yet what we will be. We will know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. You know what that says? That says this, what I started out with. True teaching and doctrine leads to holiness. It leads to a pure life. Not a perfect life, a pure life. So get ready, because Jesus is coming. He's returning. So what are we to do between now and then? Increase in the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ because that will lead you to stability. It will lead you holiness and godliness, and it will lead you to a life that honors God, that maintains joy and peace in the midst of God's church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you for your kindness in giving us this truth. Lord, we actually walk, walk around as special, privileged people. Not everybody knows the things that I've spoken of today. Only believers, only God's people know it. So, Lord, I pray you will enable us to live with the thought every day. Remind us every day you're coming. And I pray that those results I've mentioned would be effective in our life that we may give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for what you have done and what you yet will do. And I pray this in your name. Amen.